My name is Hayley Jane Sims and you are listening to Your Manchester Stories. Trishna Baradia is an award-winning chronic illness and disability advocate, advising industry, the third sector and the NHS on how to improve the support, services and information available to patients during their healthcare journeys. Diagnosed with multiple sclerosis in 2008, aged just 28, and living with several other chronic conditions, Trishna has since built a formidable reputation in public speaking, consultancy, and writing and reviewing patient-facing health literature. She's also a regular contributor across radio, television, and printed media, and in 2015 was one of six guests chosen to appear on a special edition of BBC One's Strictly Come Dancing, The People Strictly for Comic Relief. Trishna has received several awards for her work. She earned the Points of Light Award from the UK Prime Minister's Office for Services to People with MS and Chronic Illnesses, and she was named Woman of the Year in the Asian Achievers Award 2018. She also collected the Eye for Pharma European Patient Advocate Award 2018. Trishna has worked for most of her career as a translator, analyst and team leader for a business information services provider. Uh, Trishna, thank you very much for joining us on the day that you are receiving your Outstanding Alumni Award. Thank you so much. No, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. (laughs) So we always start at the very beginning um, on this podcast. So could you tell us a little bit about where you grew up? So I grew up, so where I call home, which is where I spent the most amount of time, it's a small town in Buckinghamshire. Um, very, um, very rural England, um, not very diverse at all. When we moved there, which was in the mid eighties, there was only, I think three Asian families, if that. And, um, so that's where I've spent the most amount of time, but I have moved around quite a bit. So I had lived in Nottingham. I'd lived in Ainsdale near Southport. I also lived in the Netherlands for two years as well so even though I'd had the opportunity to see different places it was very much everywhere that I'd lived had been small towns Mm. I'd never been in a city and they weren't they weren't diverse communities more often than not I mean my family were the only Asian family or only one of say two or three Asian families Um, but I think growing up so you know like I said in the Buckinghamshire countryside really made me want to I think explore um when I you know turned 18 and thought where is it that I want to go to for university I thought I I I want to you know go somewhere where there's a city I want to experience more diverse communities um places where a lot of things were happening and there was a lot a lot of opportunities to expand your mind and broaden your your horizons was Manchester like the city that you chose or was it it was a it was a combination of um of various factors actually uh so i so my mum is actually mancunian she grew up in manchester so i knew i knew the city to an extent but not the student side of the city because whenever we came up to manchester it was always to see family mm. and manchester so the university actually had the degree that i that fitted into what I wanted to do because I I didn't want to do a straight degree. Um, I knew that I wanted to carry on with my Spanish. I knew that I wanted to do that beyond A-level, but I didn't want to do a pure languages degree. 
and European studies in Spanish, which is what I eventually ended up studying, uh, that gave me the flexibility to be able to put other things into the mix because I, I also wanted to carry on with my politics. I'd done politics at A-level and also history. And it was really the degree choice um, and the fact, like I said, it was a city. Mm. I knew I didn't want to go to a campus-based university because I felt that in a campus... I would be enclosed in in a bubble, so mm-hmm. to speak, and not necessarily have those experiences that you get from living in in a city. Um, and Manchester, it's I always say it's large enough to feel like you're in a city, but also small enough to have quite a community yes. atmosphere. Yeah. And I like that because when so when we were living in the Netherlands, we were out there as expats. But we were very conscious of not just staying within the expat community. Mm. And that's what I really wanted when I went to university. I didn't want to just stay within the university community. I wanted to have the opportunity to, you know, join, you know, organisations or make friends who were outside of the university. So I could actually feel like I was living in in a place. Um, And Manchester offered that and yeah ended ended up here <laughs> what was it like coming to a, a more diverse place having grown up somewhere that wasn't diverse what, what was it like to come to Manchester where it really is very diverse so it sounds funny but in a way it was actually a bit of a culture shock because growing up the only exposure I really had to to Asian culture was when we specifically went to, for example, an event or a festival. Um, so at Diwali time, for instance, we might go to an event which was specifically for Diwali in London. Um, whereas in Manchester, it was literally, it was all around you. You know, you go to the Curry Mile and that's all you can see. Yeah. And so in a way it was a culture shock, but I also, I loved it because I had the opportunity to do things which I hadn't had the opportunity to do growing up because there just wasn't that, you know, for example, you know, the cultural events and, you know, some of the religious festivals which were being celebrated. We didn't have that in close proximity um, to us when we were growing up. Whereas, I mean, so there's one Hindu festival which lasts for nine nights um, called Navratri and they they um, I think they still do it actually they celebrate it for all nine nights at Withenshaw Forum and I remember that I think it was either the first or the second year that I was here I went every single night because I was just like, oh this is this is amazing you know and it's right on my doorstep so I actually learned a lot about my own, you know, my own background and culture from being in Manchester, which mm. I've not really had the opportunity to do. And also for the first time in my life, my friend circle was, I had Asian, Asians in, within my friend circle, which growing up I'd never had. I mean, at primary school, um, there was myself and my two sisters, and then there was one other boy who was Chinese, and we were the only people from ethnic minority backgrounds in the whole primary school. Um, so even that was, again, it was a huge learning experience because I got to see how other, pe- other British Asians had grown up, what they had been exposed to, and 
again, it was about broadening my horizons, but also learning about my own culture as well, sort of beyond what my parents obviously were able to teach me at home. Yeah, it's such an interesting perspective. Yeah. Like, even just that idea of your friendship circle. Um, so you, you were diagnosed with MS at 28? Yes. Um, what was that like to receive a diagnosis? Uh, so it was a shock. Um, but at the same time, so I'd been experiencing symptoms and I mean, so in August, so it was summer 2007, I'd completely lost the feeling down one side of my body. And that's really when the path to my MS diagnosis started. And so while it was a shock, it was also a bit of a relief because I thought, okay, I know obviously what's going on now. I can now start planning and do do something about it. When you're waiting for the diagnosis, actually that's really hard because then you've got all these things going around your head thinking, it could be anything from, you know, the things which I thought, I thought maybe I just injured myself playing hockey. I thought maybe I'd trapped a nerve to maybe I've got a tumour on my spine or maybe, you know, I have some kind of degenerative, you know, brain condition and, you know, this is the start of a really, you know, quick deterioration. You just, you don't know. And actually that unknown and that sort of waiting in limbo Mm. is, for me, it was worse than actually receiving the diagnosis because... I felt once I'd received it, I could start being practical. Um, and I mean, people say, well, you, you were very young, but generally people develop symptoms. So most people will develop their first MS symptoms in their 20s and 30s. So actually I was quite a typical age. Um, and it's one of the reasons why I've been, I think, so vocal and so passionate about raising awareness because people assume that MS is an old person's condition. And I don't know if that's because sort of, you know, 30 odd years ago, there were no, you know, potential, you know, treatments to slow down progression and things like that. So once people became sort of visibly um, disabled, they were in their sort of their 40s and 50s. And so people then associated it with people who were older. Um, but as I said, I mean, most people tend to develop their symptoms in their 20s and 30s. And that's just when, you know, you're, you're making your way mm. in the world. You know, you're thinking about, you know, your career progression, relationships, family, you know, getting on the housing ladder and things like that. So it really throws you a curveball whereby if you don't have the right support and information it can have a huge impact on i mean ms does have a huge impact on every single decision that you make but if you don't have that right support and information then you could be making decisions that actually you wouldn't necessarily make if you know those other things were in were in place um and when i was diagnosed so my I, I was basically given this diagnosis and then just sent away. And I, mm. I wasn't given information and I didn't know where to go to for support. And my family and I really went through a very steep learning curve at the same time as you're coming to terms with a diagnosis. 
And so I felt that, you know, people shouldn't be going through that. And I thought, if I'm going through that, then other people must be in the same position. Yeah. And actually, this shouldn't be happening. Um, so, yeah, it, I mean, it, it's, it's hard, but also you get to a point where you think, well, you know, people often say, oh, you're really brave. And I say, no, I'm not. I'm actually, I'm just getting, I'm getting on with my life because to, in my mind, there's two alternatives. You know, either you get on with things or you spend the rest of your life thinking, why me? And being angry and frustrated. And, you know, that doesn't, for me, that I, that wasn't going to be me. I, you know, that's, I don't think that would have helped anyone or anyone around me. And so you do, you, you get on with it. And yes, you face challenges, but you have to, you know, face those challenges and find, see ways of getting over them because you have to carry on living. You know, you could, life, life can't stop. Yeah, what's really interesting is, is how you've you, taken it in a really positive way. Um, and is that kind of talking about how there wasn't a lot of information is that what motivated you to get into campaigning yes and particularly within like the Asian community yes no it, it was I mean the major reason why um, I so I'm one of those people where I feel that if something needs to be changed I won't sit there and complain about it I will do something about mm. it and I thought, well, how can I raise more awareness? How can I, particularly about the hidden um, hidden symptoms of the condition? Because to all intents and purposes, I look perfectly fit and healthy. Walking down the street, nobody would know that I have MS. And the vast majority of symptoms of MS are invisible. And within the Asian community, Lots of people haven't even heard of MS. There's lots of stereotypes. There's lots of myths mm. that need to be sort of debunked. And there's a lot of cultural issues that come with being diagnosed with a long-term condition and or developing disability, particularly if you're a woman, because there's this, I, sort of this ideal, I say in inverted commas, of what an Asian woman should be. So they should be a, you know, a good daughter, good mother. They should be able to, you know, now, if they want to earn a living, they should get to the very top. They, they need to be everything to everyone. And when you're living with a long-term condition, you can't necessarily do all of that and you do need help. And I know lots of um, Asians who have hidden their, whether it's their MS, whether it's they've been diagnosed with cancer, whether it's, um, something like inflammatory bowel disease and they don't tell people because of the prejudice and the stigma which is attached because then you know you have people who will say well who's going to marry you now you know who's going to take that on you know how are you going to have children because having children is a huge part of the asian culture um you know how are you going to bring them up and how are you going to run a household and actually all of that is possible if you have the support around mm. you, but it's there's these, um, like I said, these cultural sort of ideals which suddenly become threatened in people's minds, and I really wanted to sort of sort of smash those, you know, myths, mm. smash those, you know, prejudices, um, by saying, you know, I'm very overtly public about my MS, and I want people to see 
that I am an Asian woman who has a long-term debilitating condition, but hey, look, you know what? I'm still living life to the full and this is what you can achieve when you've got the right support around you. And hopefully if people see that, then it will help to open up conversations and start you know, dialogues with their own family and friends and with the wider community so that they can also get the support and help that they, that they might need. Does it feel like things are changing within the Asian community? Are people starting to be more receptive to that kind of messaging? Yes, I do think things are changing. Um, and I think that's partly to do with the fact that there is, there is more information available now. And I think the younger generation are generally much more health conscious. They are more informed. Uh, you know, the gen- my generation who were born and brought up in this country, whereby, you know, we've had the opportunity to inform ourselves about our health. It wasn't like, you know, for example, my grandparents' generation, where if they went to the doctor and the doctor told them to take a tablet, they would just take it and they wouldn't ask any questions. They may not even ask why are they taking it. Whereas I think sort of generally now as a society, um, not just, you know, with British Asians, the younger generation of British Asians, but generally within a society, we are becoming more informed because access to information is much better um, because of the internet and because you know you've got some great charities and organizations out there who are doing a huge amount of work to make sure that people are informed and they are aware of symptoms and um, what support and services people can access if they're diagnosed with with something um, so yeah, things are changing. We still got we still got some way to go, um, which is why I carry on doing what I'm doing. Um, but there, there, there's definitely been a shift. Um, I've seen that even in the 11 years that I've been diagnosed, that there's been you know even in that relatively short space of time, there's been a shift. But from when I was you know a kid to now, I mean it's just you know. It, things like shared decision-making within the healthcare system that sort of move away from the paternalistic model of healthcare. Um, that's all, it's all having an influence on how people are able to cope when they are given a diagnosis of, of something. Yeah, and you, you really are demonstrating that something like a diagnosis like MS doesn't have to stop you do, doing anything because you were part of um, the people Strictly Come Dancing. Yes. We have to talk about that because <laughs> it's such a cool thing. Um, Just don't ask me to break out in dance. <laughs> we've got a nice long table here. Um, <laughs> do a bit of a jive. <laughs> how, how did you prepare for that? What was it like? It was the hardest thing that I have ever done in my life, both sort of mentally, physically and emotionally. But it was the best experience of my life as well. If I had the chance to do it again... I would, um, even though, I mean, I, it was an exhausting process. So um, from start to finish, it was four months. And during those four, four months, I was working full time. I was filming. I was dance training sometimes up to 20 hours plus per week. Could you dance before? Um, so could I dance before? I enjoyed dancing. But not formal. But I'd never been taught. Mm. Um, so, I mean, as a child, I'd done some Indian classical dancing, but that mm. was like when I was about five years old. Um, and I had taken up Zumba, actually, um, because I'd always been a hockey player. 
ever since I was young, hockey was my sport. When I was at the university, I played for the first 11. And, but there came a point where it was becoming harder and harder to play up to the, the level that I had always played. Plus, I, my, my reactions were slowing down, the fatigue was getting worse, it was taking me longer to recover from, from matches. And I remember having a conversation actually with a neuropsychologist. I was at a research, an MS research event, and I was telling her how much I loved hockey. And she actually said to me, she said, Tristan, you need to find something that you love just as much as hockey, which you will be able to still do if you were to have a relapse and suddenly you can't play hockey. And I discovered Zumba um, and Zumba and dancing is great if you have any kind of long-term condition or disability because you can make it what you want to make it. At the end of the day, it's an expression. You know, you don't have a team relying on you. It doesn't matter whether you're performing or not. Mm. Um, so I'd actually, I'd been doing Zumba for a number of years before I, I was chosen to take part in Strictly. And it was funny, actually, because the very first thing that Ali Ash asked me, Ali Ash was my professional dance partner. Um, the very first thing he asked me when we met was, do you dance? And I said, well, I go to Zumba two or three times a week. Does that count? He said, that's good enough. <laughs> he said, I'm not going to be starting completely from scratch. So, you know, I'd had, I'd had the opportunity to, you know, be able to, you know, keep in time to music and follow steps and things. Having said that, I think also having done Zumba, I'd also got into a lot of bad habits, which I didn't realise were bad habits because with Zumba, anything goes, really. Um, and I remember um, at the beginning um, of our training, Ali Ash spent one whole session with me just working on my posture because when you're doing sort of Latin and hip hop and sort of that kind of street and urban, mm. you know, soccer and dance hall, you're, you're very low and, you know, you're bent knees, which doesn't look elegant at all. And, you know, it doesn't really matter what your posture looks like. But when you're doing Latin and ballroom, you could have a straight back, shoulders, you know, completely right, you know, could be very upright. And with the jive, and this is something I actually found very difficult. So with the jive, you're like a swan. So your top half is very still, but your legs are like going really mm. fast. Whereas when I move at Zumba, I literally, I move everything. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, so that, that was interesting and it was funny. So I actually showed him some videos of Zumba and he said, watching those, I now understand why when we're training, why you do some of the things that, that you do. Mm. Um, but it was, it was brilliant. I got the chance to dance, you know, three or four times a week with him and it was it was a great sense of achievement as well because like i said it was really hard and they i mean they decided to give the person who suffers from fatigue and also balance and coordination problems probably one of the hardest dances so they chose that for you they They chose that yes so i'd been hinting very very hard that i would love to do a salsa (laughs) or a samba because obviously that's very similar to Mm. the latin vibes of zumba um, but yeah, no, they gave me a jive because they said that we felt that it fitted your personality, um, which yeah. actually they were right. Yeah. And by the end of it, I, I loved it. Um, but it, it was really hard. And every time we went through a, um, so we went through a rehearsal where we went through the whole dance from start to finish. 
both myself and Ali Ash would then collapse on the floor like we were really tired and I'd be like but you're the professional dancer why are you tired imagine how I feel (laughs) um but yeah no it was it was brilliant and it was a brilliant way to so a brilliant platform to be able to get awareness out there in terms of as I mentioned before the invisible symptoms of MS because you know it was going out to people who wouldn't have had any other reason to find out more about MS. And after the show aired, I mean, the MS Society had an increase in inquiries. We had an increase in membership for Asian MS. I had people um, coming up to me and also my parents, my family in the street to say, you know, how's Trishna doing? And or I know somebody who has MS and, you know, where can we find support and services? Um, People were contacting me on social media saying that I had, you know, I'd encouraged them to become more active. Um, And that, for me, that that was huge. That, for me, that was the legacy of, you know, the people strictly. And I think it's one of those things where... It, I don't think the show realised it was going to have that kind of impact mm. on people because everyone who was chosen all had their various challenges or mm. things that they had had to overcome in life. So whether it was, you know, Anna, for example, has two children with um, autism. So whether it was to do with autism or Cassidy, who was um, ex-military, ex-army, he's an ex-marine, um and he was an amputee um all of us had our individual challenges and it meant that people were able to see well look you know what these people have got challenges and you know it's quite similar to what i'm going through what somebody else is going through but hey look this is what can can be achieved um and you know the the support that from people um you know from the community the ms community the wide community of people with disabilities and chronic illness was just fantastic um and i think because of the inclusivity of dance which the show really portrayed well um that's one of the reasons why i then became a patron for paradance uk Mm. because i wanted to be able to further that sort that cause and say that you know you can be active you can you know you can do dance it's a very inclusive exercise to do and so my my younger sister is actually she's a qualified um inclusive dance instructor now and as a result of that yeah so as a result of seeing what i did and also um so she's had her own issues as well and um so she has inflammatory bowel disease and also she's been through some mental health issues relating to PTSD from a, um, from a car crash. And she also recognised the, the, the opportunity that dance can give. I and mean, we, we always joke in the family, she's always been the dancer. She was the kind of, um, she was the kind of kid that, so we, she used to watch Top of the Pops. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how many people remember Top of the Pops, but she used to watch Top of the Pops and copy the dance routines um and so that was always something she'd always loved and the dance had helped her in what in this is very similar ways that it helped me and she said i want to be able to give something back and so she runs inclusive dance classes which i i obviously i go to 
And it's brilliant because it's such a safe, non-judgmental space. We have people, so there's one lady who comes and she's in her mid-70s and she's an amputee. She has one leg. She does it from her wheelchair. We've somebody, got somebody else who has cerebral palsy, somebody else who's paralysed from the chest down. And, I mean, when he started, he was only able to um, lift his arms um, sort of up to table height. Now he can lift them above his head and That's wave amazing. them around. And, I mean, his, his doctors can't believe, you know, just the effect it's mm. had. But also on mental health. I was going to say on your well being and things. Exactly. Because, you know, you go there and everybody, you know, we just have so much fun. And like I said, nobody is judging anyone else. You go there and you do what you're able to. And we're all there because we love dancing and we love moving to music. And if you can do that, and obviously you're doing something good for your physical health as well, then, you know, that's, you know, that's even better. And, one of the things that um, paradance try to do is try they do they try to promote that they try to promote the inclusivity of dance and encourage people who possibly have never thought of dance as a potential form of exercise to say actually you know what this is something that it could provide a whole raft of benefits and is fully inclusive and that's so important. I think these days, um, it's very. It should be very much about everyone can do something if that that support is there. It shouldn't be that we have you know a special class for people with disabilities. It should be that it's a class for everyone, mm. and that it can be adapted. Um, and I mean, we are lucky in the UK compared to you know many other countries in terms of inclusivity. But again, there is still a long way to go before we are a fully inclusive society and you're doing a lot to kind of raise awareness you've spoken at 10 downing street um that must have been amazing it was amazing (laughs) (laughs) very nerve-wracking um but it yeah again i was just i was stood there and i had samantha cameron on one side of me and i had michelle mitchell who was then the the chief executive of the ms society and then there was me in the middle i was just like what, what how 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 is this how has this happened um so yeah it was yeah amazing <laughs> oh, and in terms of uh, raising uh, awareness for for ms and things like that, what do you think the future holds so i think so uh, the future for me is about making sure that patient needs are put at the center of everything so i work with um, multiple what are known as stakeholders so with charities and patient associations with clinicians and the nhs with um, the pharmaceutical industry and you know medical device companies digital health companies and also regulators and whereas in the past it's always been um, about okay this is what we think the patient wants this is what we're going to do about it to okay this is what we think the patient wants this is what we're going to do about it at the end we're going to ask the patient for some feedback now we're moving more towards that right from the very start the patients are being involved and they're being asked because there is no point you know i often say there's no point in for example designing a new car if you don't ask drivers what they what they want and what they need and what is relevant that's got to start happening within healthcare and it is starting to happen 
but it's a very, very slow change. And it's only really started to happen even in the time that I've been diagnosed. And that's what I that's where I see the future lying. It's where the patient's needs are being put at the centre and the patient is in being involved at every in every step of the, the, the journey. Um, because, you know, at the end of the day, if things aren't relevant and the support and information out there isn't what patients want to need well then there's, there's no point really um so that's that's really where i see the future in terms of ms specifically we're at a very exciting time in terms of research and in terms of the development of medications um i would hope that in my lifetime we will see something that stops the progression of ms and potentially can reverse some of the damage that has already been caused and there are signs there that it's you know it might be possible i mean when i was diagnosed there was five licensed drugs available on the market to slow down progression for relapsing ms now there's about 14 and there's also you know the first licensed drug for progressive ms and that's just in the 11 years that i've been diagnosed so you know who knows in the next 20 25 years what what might happen yeah, the future's bright. Yes, yeah. the future is orange. Like, MS Society um, colours are orange, so I'm wearing an orange dress today. So um, Representing. Yeah, representing. <laughs> so our final question, yeah. um, we're going to give you access to our time machine and you can go anywhere in Manchester um, yeah. at any time in history. Where would you go? So actually, I would love to go back in time to the Industrial Revolution because I actually think that is really when the, the social change and the economic change in the north, just generally in the north of England, was so fascinating. I actually, one of my modules, um, one of my history modules when I was, in Man- was studying at Manchester was to do with the economic and social change during the Industrial Revolution. And Manchester was really at the heart of you know so so much change and you know it would be so fascinating to be a fly on the wall to have seen that happening and you know the way that you know the, the how industry was having an impact on your average joke blogs so to speak um and i think for manchester as a as a city well it, that's how it became mm. a city I think that would be really interesting to, to see. That's a great answer. I love it. <laughs> Thank you very much, Trishna. Thank no, you so much for joining us and enjoy the rest of your day celebrating your Thank outstanding you. alumni award. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Your Manchester Stories. Please rate, review and subscribe or follow this podcast wherever you listen. If you are a graduate of the University of Manchester, you can connect with us at your.manchester.ac.uk. This podcast is produced by Kate Bradbury and Haley jane Sims on behalf of the Division of Development and Alumni Relations at the University of Manchester. The music for this podcast was supplied by Blue Dot Sessions.